0: We were called and are united by a common vision, which has now become a command that we cannot ignore. The four of us are here to prevent the apocalypse. Welcome to the percolated media review of Knock at the Cabin. Hi there. Can I talk to you for a little bit? Continuing their M. Night Shyamalan retrospective they began over at Binge Media, Garrett and Matt Bring Mike back to dissect the latest thriller done by the polarizing director. We're not here to hurt you. How does Knock at the Cabin stack up against Shyamalan's other work?
1: I'm not listening to another goddamn word you say!
0: How is Dave Bautista's performance? Are you willing to make a choice? And what's next? for M night. You have to understand that we cannot and will not choose who is to be sacrificed for you. Find out the answers to all these questions and more coming up courtesy of percolated media. Will you make a choice?
1: Knock at the Cabin, released February 3rd, 2023. Budget on this was $20 million, box office $21.9 million so far. And this is directed by our buddy M. Night Shyamalan. Surprise, surprise, surprise. People, you might have thought we forgot about M. Night. And Matt, I got to be honest, even though we announced it at our year-end show around the time this thing was opening, Matt said, so we're going to record the knock at the cabin, right? I was like, "Uh, oh, yeah, I got to go see that. (laughs) This really slipped my mind. I I had completely forgotten this was out.
2: Oh, I didn't forget. And I don't forgive because it's been a year and a half since we, almost two years since we did Old. And it made me realize that, wow, this guy can put out movies relatively quick, especially during still the remnants of a pandemic. So the fact we're reviewing this now and it wasn't punted or postponed is kind of shocking.
1: Absolutely. But we're not doing this by ourselves. We're once again joined by the gentleman who joined us on that journey those years ago, and that was an interesting journey to take because he had seen the majority of those for the first time, and now we're all seeing one for the first time. Mister Second Place on Jeopardy himself, Mister Mike Ganary. how are you doing, sir? Hello,
3: I'm doing okay. It's a nice, you it's been set a nice to dive day. back into ready. M Night? What? Oh, I'm ready. To, oh, I'm ready. I, I'm ready to knock on the cabin. I'm ready to be inducted into the Night Chronicles. To to take a ride in the elevator of... What was that movie called that he produced with the elevator? Devil.
1: Devil, Yeah. Devil,
3: yeah. Oh, i am ready to take a ride with the devil on the elevator to the cabin. I'm going to read the signs along the way. Here we go.
1: The movie that knocked Avatar The Way of Water off the top of the box office, boys... Oh, Knock at the Cabin. He announced that he was doing this. And first of all, he was only going to produce it. He was going to do this like double Mike. And it's interesting to bring that movie up. He was going to initially just produce it. Oh, interesting. Another director was attached. But he ended up rewriting the screenplay. And he was like, you know what? I want to do this myself. And here we go. I'll go to Matt second, because I know he's read the book. Mike, we watched Old a year and a half ago. What were you thinking going into this new movie of his? Oh, I
3: was pumped. I thought. That really? The, oh, yeah. I thought that the trailer, which has been out for a while, like I remember that they were kind of playing that one a while ago, uh, was really just very well done, really well edited. It had a lot of neat, uh, neat shots. It was interesting to see Dave Bautista in such a role, and uh, I thought it was a really intriguing premise. I had no clue where it was going to go. So uh, I was pumped, and I saw it last
1: Friday. Last Friday you saw it. Yeah, we'll get into our viewings here in a second. Now, Matt, as the gentleman on this podcast who has read the book that this movie is based on, what were you thinking? I mean, the last time M. Night did something that you had seen before, <laughs> it ended up being <laughs> The Last Airbender. Were you at all, as Mike says, pumped for this movie?
2: Pumped? No. No. Curious, yes. I have read the book. Roughly around the time it was released. I did not read it because the movie was getting made. I think I was at Barnes & Noble, and it was in their new section, and I could get a paperback copy and and not have to chuck over a few extra bucks for hardcover. And i got to say, I wouldn't put the Oprah sticker on the book or anything like that, but I thought it was a very enjoyable read. And when I heard I'm Night Shyamalan was going to adapt it into a movie, thoughts of Avatar The Last Airbender started to creep into my head. It was literally knocking on the proverbial cabin that leads into my brain cells, and I kind of wanted to barricade the door, to be perfectly frank. Even Old was based on a graphic novel that I have not yet read. So the idea of Shyamalan taking something and putting his spin on it did have me... As I said, curious. I think that's the right word when I looked at the casting list that was assembled. And to Mike's point, I thought the trailer was... It was constructed very well as far as it gives you the basics, but it doesn't really give any sort of implication as to what it's actually leading to. So, with that in mind, I was willing to
1: give this every
2: chance in the book. No pun intended.
1: Old came out at a really weird time. We reviewed that movie. It was filmed right in the midst of a pandemic. And I don't remember what the box office numbers were for that. They were good. They were pretty good? I think the statistic was that it was
3: the first movie of the pandemic era to turn a profit. Okay.
2: I looked it up, so, the record. For, so Old was made for $18 million, and it made $90 million
1: oh wow that's incredible so the fact that he was able to do that he was doing this and he feels passionate about it and just seeing in him in interviews leading up to this viewing he seemed really passionate about doing this and he really seemed to like that book this didn't seem like a money thing like the last airbender was for me but i was still on the fence because this is m Knight's second r-rated film and we know how well his first r-rated film went boys it's, happening. it's a good point <laughs> Yeah, this time, he's not on TV saying, oh, you guys are going to be scared to death. You guys are going to love this. He's not doing any of that. He's not really going to the pomp and circumstance route where he's celebrating what he just made, and he wants you to see it that bad. This is being released. It was a subtle trailer, but I have to say the trailer didn't really intrigue me that much. When I saw the guy from Mindhunter, he was in this, and and I do like him a lot on that show. That kind of intrigued me. But I got to say, I went into this very cold. I didn't read one review. I wanted to go in as cold as possible because I was expecting one of those major M. Night twists. We'll get to it. Now... I went to this yesterday as we talked. We're recording on a Tuesday. I saw this yesterday on a Monday. I went with a buddy from work. Jen was like, nah, I'm not going to see that. You you had fun. I had eight people in the theater. It was a 1.30 show. And people were responding to it, even though it was that low of a number. I heard some responses to some things going on in this. Matt, you saw this, what, f- the Friday it was out, right? Just Friday? Yeah, it was a Friday evening at 7 p.m., which is prime time for theatrical
2: Going, but having said that, we experienced record cold here where I live, so a lot of people weren't going outdoors. And if it wasn't for the fact that we bought our tickets ahead of time just to prevent our own apocalypse of having to sit at the front of the theater, although for better or worse, I'm glad we didn't go to AMC Theaters because that, that, that is that is <laughs> yeah that is the prediction that the, that the apocalypse is coming. It's called AMC Theaters, but yeah. it, it was very much a quiet, theater. I felt like I was the only person in that theater, even though I was not.
3: Oh, that's interesting. It was packed when I saw it, and it was a very, it wasn't a full-on classic, oh, audience all gasped at the same time type thing. It's also really not really that kind of movie, but it was definitely like, as I, as people were leaving and stuff, People were murmuring, like, you, you could tell that, the, that people, whether they liked it or not, is a different question, but they were into it, in the sense that they were wrapped up into what the movie was doing.
1: All right, well, what do you guys say? We dive into what they were talking about. Let's get into the movie. We... Start off with an old style Universal logo. I haven't seen this logo since, God, I think Jaws 3 was the last time yeah. I saw this logo. <laughs> it's been a while. And then some opening credits. Not very often that you see this style of credits anymore, where they take up about five minutes or so in the beginning stages of the movie. Uh, and I gotta say, I, I kind of dug it. You know, I read that Shyamalan really wanted to give an old style feel to this. When I say old style, I mean like 90, 80s, 90s style feel to the aesthetic and things that he was doing with this. But I, I'm really intrigued by uh, just the opening moments of this what about you mike oh
3: yeah totally i mean anytime that a filmmaker breaks up the vintage studio logo i'm always into that it's it's such an easy lay for me it it works although i gotta say nitpick off the right off the front which is that you start with the universal logo from like i would say late 70s early 80s it was what it looked like to me and then it goes into i guess is it m night's production company logo or is it yeah okay Uh and that one is not retro at all because it didn't exist in the seventies. So, that's, so that's I'm point. like, ooh, I don't know if that works, but that's a very, very annoying minor Michael pet peeve. But yeah, no, no. And then with the yeah, with the very evocative stylized opening credits, I was liking that. Just the idea of like, you know, the last few M Night movies, especially old, I, I compared to uh, the Twilight Zone, and this uh-huh. is also. I kind of feel like this is basically a feature length Twilight Zone or Outer Limits or you know, maybe Alfred Hitchcock Presents type episode, but as a a feature film, and having these really kind of stylized opening credits, I think, is kind of part of that. It's like gearing the audience into this kind of old-fashioned style, speculative fiction sort of parable type thing.
1: Now, Matt, as somebody who hates the fact that we have ten logos before the start of any movie, what were you feeling about this?
2: Somewhat relieved because there were only two, so... Okay. I I bet the under and i was proven right i don't have any problems with this i thought it was an atmospheric way to start the movie I, i'm in a good spot so far
1: we then cut to the little girl we'll be spending the majority of this movie with or we'll be spending all this movie with actually when as she gathers up some grasshoppers in a jar and tells them to relax and that she won't hurt them we then cut to leonard played by Bid dave batista he uh, actually left james Gunn's side just long enough to actually do this movie for m night and now as i said earlier i hadn't really heard much about this movie but the one thing i had heard were raves for this performance by dave batista honestly guys this is something i could see hulk hogan doing something like this and the exact thing in this exact role that isn't to say that batista's bad but he doesn't really win any accolades from me just because this role is just kind of there for me
2: well, given the undertones and sadly misguided undercurrents of homophobia, I think Hogan would have fit right into this universe.
0: Jesus. Now, having
2: said that, as a fan of Dave Batista, I certainly think he's he, he, he has a more interesting process than Dwayne Johnson has ever had, where I, I do think that Batista is actively trying to be an actor instead of just selling his brand. I think he does a good job. From what I recall, because it's been almost five years since I read the book, I don't believe Leonard is described as looking like a bodybuilder, but it was never so distracting that I was thinking that he should have been this meek, timid guy. I think this casting works fine. And, and in all honesty, none of the acting in this movie, which has been a staunch... Criticism of mine, when it comes to Shyamalan in particular, that's not really something I can criticize in this movie. I think everybody came to play, but part of that is supporting my argument that Shyamalan's best performances come from good actors who can convey the material. And I've seen everyone in this movie, in some capacity, hell, there's someone in this movie I didn't know was cast until he showed up. Kind mm. of caught me off guard. So it was setting me up for a different kind of Shyamalan movie because I was expecting going into this movie for Batista to give the kind of performance that Mark Wahlberg gave in The Happening, where he just looks totally lost and befuddled.
1: Mike, you are uh, probably unfamiliar with the wrestling business, I would say. You probably weren't too aware of Dave Batista before you stepped into the Hollywood lim- limelight. This is correct. Uh, what How are did you feeling about? Know by... I just wow, guess okay. What are you feeling about Dave Bautista in this movie?
3: I think he's quite good. I think it's a little deceptively difficult what he's doing because he kind of has to do three things at once. They all have to; they can't be contradicting each other really. Which is that he kind of has to seem, in a way, like a normal guy, which seems bizarre when we consider what his, both what his role is in the movie, that he's this, you know, harbinger of the apocalypse, and also when you consider the fact who's a giant golem man, you know, it's like, but he has to seem like, we'll get, we'll get into it later, but he has to seem like somebody who is a second grade teacher in Chicago, you know, he has to seem like somebody who's that, but he also has to be somebody who is this incredible, almost biblical uh, force of nature, who is this menacing threat within the space, but also he has to be very mysterious in the sense that he can't be telegraphing to the audience how much what he's doing is the truth. Because mm-hmm. throughout the movie, the, there's kind of that question like, is this guy crazy? Are all these people crazy? Are they lying? Are they? So I think that there's sort of like three different things that he's doing here that he has to kind of juggle at once without letting any of them fall over. And I think it remarkably well. I don't think that it's like among the best performances that have been in uh, a Shyamalan movie. But I think it's, it's definitely really good work. And I think it's a credit to that he's talked about wanting to really focus on being an actor and not just uh, a movie star, like perhaps, I don't know, Dwayne Johnson, who uh,
2: mm-hmm. well,
3: maybe maybe could spend a little more time on his acting, a little less time on uh, hyping us on the, the power hierarchy in the DC universe. And I think this is to his credit. This is a genuine performance.
1: Yeah, this isn't something where he gets his shirt ripped off or anything, too. Like, he he keeps covered up all of this movie. So I I, I do think he is going more for that acting-type performance. And, you know, he's been working on it for a while. I just wasn't too impressed by it. Maybe it's just the character. And we'll get into the character as we get into it. But it was a little too subtle for me. So Leonard asks if he can talk to Wen for a bit, and she says that she's not supposed to talk to strangers. And Leonard tells her that she's been taught well. He just wants to talk to her for a little bit. Now Shyamalan, I think he's shooting this very well. He always films Batista from the ground up, if you notice. You know, to make him look huge. He's using a lot of close-ups, and he is using this time to get some exposition out, which we'll get to here in a bit. I think this is a very good scene, but I do think that... <laughs> Shyamalan himself, knowing as we know him, boys, and we've reviewed his movies in the past. I think he feels that he just filmed something that amounts to the first scene in *Glorious Bastards* with the way he's filming this and he's kind of drawing this out. What do you guys think about this first scene?
2: It's very much
1: with the way it's shot. It's
2: the opposite angle of. We'll talk about this in a couple years, Garrett. When Georgie talks to Pennywise in any of the *It* movies, Mm -hmm. TV series, where instead of Pennywise, he shot lower than the kid. This one's the opposite. And it's got that same kind of dynamic. It's literally, I'm not supposed to talk to strangers, and the person talks the kid over. I do have a problem, and this is something that I have complained about with Shyamalan's movies in the past. It's not anywhere near as bad here, but for Wen's age, who was supposed to be seven, she talks in a much more sophisticated way than either of her parents do. Again, it's in Shyamalan movies, even once they're based on books, all the adults sound like autonomous robots, and the kids sound like these borderline Einstein-type kids.
3: Well, I mean, the dialogue in, in Shaman movies is always very, like, has this weird stilted kind of quality to it. There is definitely some of that here, although here I think it, it weirdly, in this first scene at least, it actually kind of enhances some of the intentional awkwardness or intentional un- discomfort of this first scene based on some bad things that are about to happen. It's interesting, people have talked lately, I've been, you know, on Twitter because I've make a lot of mistakes in my life. And um, <laughs> somebody said that, that somebody was complaining about this movie, and they said it was like, they said, oh, if I wanted to see a play, I'd go to the theater, which I think is silly um, and is bad, cinematically illiterate and theatrically illiterate. And this first scene is, I think, a good example of what I'm talking about because he's using the, the close-ups and the, the canted angles and stuff in a way right from the start to cut up, the space that we're in into bits that will give us the right kind of tone and vibe and and, and things like that. And maybe I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but you know, there was this critic who a few years ago, I remember reading, I think it was Ignati Vishnevetsky who talked about how after he sees a movie, what he likes to do. And I think this is weird, but it made me think, if he likes to go home and try and draw a diagram of what the main setting of the movie was, If it's mostly Hmm. set in one house or whatever, try and draw the house. See if you know where the bathroom is, know where the living room is, what hallway goes to where, where the front door is, and everything like that. And when we talk about this movie, I think I understand every bit of the space here. Not from the beginning, but from early on. Like, the layout, every inch of the cabin, things like that. And so from the bat, I think that Shyamalan's direction is really kind of tight, and well-placed, really, from pretty much the first
1: scene. Yeah, and just to go back to Batista for a bit, Shyamalan did say the performance he saw from Batista that made him want him in this movie was in Blade Runner 2049, which, of all performances that Batista's given, I don't know if I would go to that one.
3: People love that performance, though. I don't like that movie,
1: but people love that performance. I don't either, yeah. Matt, we'll get to that in about a decade. Yeah,
2: and, and I think Shyamalan also saw the... There was a short not a short film, but they did like a twenty minute precursor to that movie that primarily starred his character. Because mm-hmm. you know, in a movie that already feels like it's twenty hours long, I guess that twenty
1: minutes wasn't essential enough to include. <laughs> <laughs> so it's here where Leonard says that he also liked catching grasshoppers when he was her age, and this is where we learn that Wen actually has two daddies, Daddy Eric and Daddy Andrew. Matt, I have questions. First of all, how did you feel about this? And second, is this in the book?
2: All right, I got to show some restraint for now because I definitely have some things to say. But this is straight from the book. Andrew and Eric are a happily married gay couple in the book. And this is their adopted daughter. So, So this movie, I will say up front, because I am planning to do a more a deeper dive into the book at some point. There is a considerable portion of this movie that is extremely faithful, and then something happens where it takes a drastic departure and never merges again with the book. Interesting. Uh, and I'm so excited to talk about that because it, it ties into a lot of my thoughts on the movie. But the setup, as it is, it's the book, so I, I can't complain. I'm glad that Shyamalan cast two openly gay actors to play these parts. It's not people pretending to be gay, but I do have a problem that the movie never shows them being really that intimate with one another, and that's a huge problem I have. It feels like it was one of those movies made when people were, there was still that aura of showing gay kisses on screen, or even, God forbid, a gay sex scene. For certain portions of this movie, it feels really sanitized, and it frustrates me, given that there are flashbacks that could have used those those moments to really flesh this out.
3: I would agree with that. I wouldn't, like, stake my whole, like, reading of the movie on that or anything like that. But, yeah, I I also felt that kind of, I don't know if it's how intentional it was, but just, like, a hesitance in showing physical and romantic intimacy. Not so much romantic, but physical intimacy between Eric and Andrew. Uh, So I also, I I had that thought as well.
1: We learned that Wen's favorite movie is Kiki's Delivery Service, and when she asked Leonard why he's here... He kind of avoids the question, and then he asks about the scar on her lip, and he responds to her answer, saying that his heart hurts because of what he has to do today. And then this is when she spots the other members of this club, that they're starting to walk towards them, and then he says that they're here to help him do a very important job, one that might be the most important job in the world. Again... We've talked about this scene a lot, but I just think this is a very nice setup for what we're about to get. It is.
2: Batista has a very important job to do. He has to put M. Night Shyamalan over.
1: <laughs> wow. That's a wrestling
2: term, Mike. I'll explain it later.
1: Yeah, it's. we'll explain it after that. Okay. Leonard says that they are going to have to make a very important decision and that her dads are going to have to let them in when they ask to be let in. When Run's in the house and tells Andrew and Eric that they have to come in right now, Now, Andrew is played by Ben Aldridge, and Eric is played by Jonathan Goff, like I said, from Mindhunter. Now, Matt, you mentioned how you feel Shyamalan has displayed them and portrayed them. How do you feel the actors do themselves in these roles? I think the
2: actors are very good. And I have to reiterate this point because it may get misconstrued as we delve deeper into the movie. What I have to say about the depictions and the way this is handled has nothing to do with what the actors are bringing to this material. I think both of them do quality work. It's been a while since I've seen Ben Aldrich in Anything Good because I'm one of the five people who watches Pennyworth. And he plays, oh my God. He plays Thomas Wayne in that <laughs> because, of course, Alfred, a British SAS soldier, would know Bruce Wayne's father who is a forensics accountant. <laughs> I know Jonathan Groff, you know, from Mindhunter, from Frozen. And, you know, we'll talk about him in The Matrix when we get to that eventually. Oh, yeah. So I'm glad, you know, I have to compliment Shaman for casting actors, who, who know the perspective that the the, mm-hmm. the book has.
3: Jonathan Groff is somebody who I've been aware of for a long time. I mean, I'm a huge Mindhunter fan, and uh, him in Matrix Resurrections, I really love that. Performance, I mean, fucking Hamilton, he's in fucking Hamilton. <laughs> I mean, you know. Uh, and all, oh, going back right. all the way to Spring Awakening, which I, you know, I, I haven't seen it on Broadway, but I definitely have listened to the soundtrack many times. And so it, it was, uh, it, it was nice seeing him it was essentially a co-lead role in this big movie. And, uh, and Ben Aldridge uh, was somebody who I, having never seen him in anything before, was really impressed by, which we'll, I think we'll get to more on some of that later. But that, I thought he really uh, just totally uh, acquitted himself in terms of some of the places that he ends up going with this film.
1: Yeah, I agree with both of you. I I find their performances very engaging. I find them both very good. And we have complained about the acting in Shyamalan's movies before, not just Mark Wahlberg in The Happening, but we're talking Adrian Brody in The Village. But here, I, I think he does well. And I think it has a lot to do, and Matt, you cleared it up for me, in that this is the exact portrayal in the book. I thought maybe he was going out there I thought maybe he was taking a straight couple from the book and he just kind of made them gay just to make them gay Uh, you telling me that really does give this kind of an organic feel and the fact that both of these are two openly gay actors I think again that works to the movie's advantage and I I think that Shyamalan's really playing with that here Wen tells them that the people are out there and that they have big weapons so no they're not Jehovah Witnesses we hear a knock at the door, and it's Leonard asking for them to please open the door. They learn that Wen told them their situation, right down to their being two dads, so he like a clarification of who's talking. Leonard pleads his case, and Andrew goes to call the police, but the phones are not working as the phone lines have been cut, and of course the cell phones don't get service out here. This is also when we hear something that becomes very important later, and that's that Andrew has a gun in the car. Again, I think Sean Long's doing a nice job of setting things up here. Mike, would you agree with that?
3: Oh yeah, and this goes back to what I was saying about in the scene. I, like, I I have an understanding of like where people are coming from, where the placement of the characters within the room is how far they are from the gun, what they would have to do to get the gun. and like it's yeah. pretty good stake setting because a lot of the next half hour, 40 minutes or whatever of the movie, you run the risk of it being really dull because it's a lot of people talking in one location. And if you uh, don't establish the stakes there, you could really drive people out of their mind before them.
2: So, there's my patented sigh. I'm going to put the safety on for the gun because that is the, the, the line of demarcation that we'll get to shortly. Interesting. Okay. That is set up. It's in the book. I should also say the book is a little over 300 pages. So it's a, it's a lengthy read. Yeah. All things considered. and You know, this movie's a little bit over an hour and a half. So I did expect some, some truncating, but with, with what, it, what it's doing right now, where they're talking back and forth over the door, that's shot well. I get a sense of where everyone is. You feel the claustrophobia as you see people go around the perimeter. So th- there's nothing in Shyamalan's directorial toolkit that I am not warming up to at this point.
1: And Shyamalan's also doing some Tarantino-type shooting here, where there are some overhead shots of the doors as they're trying to open, and windows are being closed but the uh, people outside they start making their way in eric fights with somebody that we'll learn is, is a nurse named sabrina she ends up uh cutting eric's head and i'm laughing because we're also seeing ron from harry potter make an appearance <laughs> he's here now when i saw the opening credits and i saw ann rupert grind i'm thinking okay he's either not in this very long or he's not in it very much Because every time there's an and and there's an actor attached to it, you know, they don't have that big of a role. Matt, were you expecting Ron in this movie? (laughs) Yes, because
2: here's why. So Rupert Grint is one of the main characters on Shyamalan's show Servant. Yeah. uh, That's been on Apple TV. I haven't watched it beyond the first couple episodes, but I knew he had a relationship with Shyamalan. Now having said that, I had no idea he was in the movie. Dave Batista was really the only person I knew going into this movie. And of course we have to cast a ginger actor to play a character named Redmond. <laughs> <laughs> All the names are intact. Okay. Uh, both, both his real name and this, this Redmond persona. But I love that, you know, they cast Ron Weasley to play an extension of the Malfoys
1: because he's an open racist and a homophobe. Mike, I mean, you didn't do the Harry Potter uh, series with us, but I'm assuming you were a fan of that series. the time, I certainly was. I mean, that was,
3: I was in the prime yeah. age for that, for the, the, the whole run of yeah. those films. Yeah, no, Rupert How Grinch, are you feeling seeing him? Uh, I was down for it. You know, I haven't seen, I've never seen Servant. I mean, he's not done very many movies since the fucking Harry Potter movies ended. And it looks like he's done more TV, but, but I haven't, I didn't watch uh, Snatch on Crackle. So I don't, I could, I can't comment on that. I, I was, I I was, I was, I was like, yeah, so I'm always, I'm always looking for actors. I always like when actors get a chance to do something that's, we we think we know them and we pigeonhole them and then they come in and they get a chance to do something that we didn't necessarily expect from them. So like, I really love Simon Helberg in Annette. I thought that was such an incredible performance. I love uh, Kiki Kwan in, in Everything Everywhere All at Once. So I was, I was down seeing him here. It I was very interesting to see him get the and because that's yeah like as you say that's like tells you well he might not be in this that much of it but it also says like people are going to be like hey and rupert Grant. he's got his american accent is shaky it is it is uh it is it is all over the place but i was glad to see him in this one i think he's actually really good at this movie uh accent aside i mean that's such a that's just just one part of 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 acting so i would never want to use that as the whole thing against his performance because i think he's really like it's a really good performance of a guy who's just a real fucking shithead, which is uh, a really, like, sincere performance as a shithead, you know, a real a real guy. So um, I, I think he was really good here. In fact, spoiler alert, if you're listening to this and you're, like, pausing it every five minutes to go watch a little bit more of the movie or something, I don't know, but spoiler alert, I wish he got to be alive a little bit longer just because I feel like he was a good presence within the
1: movie yeah i agree with that and i like him in here too i didn't really notice the accent matt did you notice that
3: no and
2: i'm usually a stickler for accents that's i know you are funny thing but i think it's because all i hear whenever i see he will always be ron weasley there was no other role he could have that i will not see or hear him in that cadence So the fact that he did something even remotely different was surprising. And, you know, he looks
1: pretty much the same for being 10 years removed from Harry Potter. Now, another thing I wasn't expecting. Matt, you, me, and Adam, we just did the Sometimes They Come Back series. And that series had a ton of flashbacks in it. Are we back in that series? Because now we see a flashback to when Andrew's parents, they drove out seven hours, ended up staying 45 minutes to have this very uncomfortable dinner with Andrew and Eric. They are seemingly ashamed of their son. I was not expecting flashbacks in this. Is this in the book too? Yeah, there there are flashbacks.
2: There's more
1: in the book, but these flashbacks are needed for, for two things. One, to prevent the
2: audience from being bored because we know a lot of modern sensibilities. If you do something in one location, it's very hard to keep people for the whole duration. And B, to show that
1: these characters have experienced trauma and oppression well before they stepped into that cabin. Yeah. We get back to modern day as the guys are tied to chairs, and we learn that Eric is fully concussed. Leonard says that he likes the cartoon that's on the TV. What show is this, by the way? I have kids
2: that even I don't know. Okay, I, 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 I was wondering great. if you I did. I think it's
3: not real, because I was reading somebody online who said that in the book it's apparently uh, Steven Universe.
2: Yes. Which and is, the
3: fact that... Yeah.
2: Which is awesome.
3: Well, And the fact that it's not that... Makes me think that it's probably just a uh, fake, like that it's just something they made for the movie.
1: They probably couldn't get the rights to anything. Probably, or it's probably something that Shyamalan's daughter noticed. Well, you
3: have well, to remember yes. it's an
2: R-rated movie, and Nickelodeon Cartoon Network very likely would not license it for something that their fan base wouldn't necessarily go to see.
3: Yeah, this is a Universal. A Let's, so it's Universal. What do they have? Are they the Minions? Do they have the Minions? Yes.
2: Oh, God. If this movie was full of Minions, I would have walked out. Because if we ever do that retrospective, Garrett, you're going to have to do the end of this movie. I will beg you to kill me.
1: All right. How great Our would brain. it be it'll if... Be, it'll, be, it'll be me, Adam, and Mike. We'll, we'll do that series. How great would it be if the
3: four knockers on the door, they, they were dressed like the <laughs> man?
1: Yeah. They were wearing yellow with overalls? So, <laughs> after Andrew puts up a fuss about maybe they're being hunted down because they're a gay couple, Leonard promises that they had no idea they were a same-sex couple until they arrived. They all start introducing themselves. Sabrina says that she's a nurse, and she has a sister back home who Wen reminds her of. Leonard says that he's a first-grade teacher, but he also bartends. And we meet Redmond, who says that they've just wasted time waiting for Eric to wake up. He also says he's from Massachusetts and he helps run a gas company and that he did some time.
2: That's important because the, the book, Andrew and Eric live
1: in Cambridge, Massachusetts,
2: yeah. and they go to this cabin in New Hampshire. I don't believe that's ever implicitly said
1: where they're from in this in this movie. It's not. No. I mean, we, we'll see the scene later, but it's almost implied that this guy hunted them down at the bar. Yeah, you know? well, say, put a pin in that because that's a... Okay. All right. I'll save it. Eric concludes they're part of a cult, here to fix things and recruit them, and that their efforts are useless. We then meet Adrian, who's a cook with two cats named Riff and Rath. And then, Leonard says it's time. He says that the four of them are there to stop the apocalypse. And it's up to them, meaning Eric and Andrew, on whether or not this happens. In order to stop it, they must make a choice of sacrificing one of their own, otherwise the whole world will end. He said that they cannot act for them. Eric and Andrew must make the decision themselves. And then Leonard says that all their visions were so vivid, which led them to one another. And everything you've heard about the apocalypse will happen. Water will drown buildings. The sky will fall to earth. And Andrew yells that they need help and that they sound like every single homeless guy at every corner when they talk like this. I will say, you know, I I, I wasn't too high on uh, Patisa's performance. But I like him here where he's kind of given. This is not easy exposition to give. And I think he's doing a pretty good job here. Mm-hmm. Yep, And this predicament is direct from the book. Everything he says where he talks about that
2: the oceans rise, there's a plague, sky falls, and the last thing is impending darkness.
1: And he also says that if you commit suicide, it doesn't count, so to speak. Okay, so you can't put a—one of them can't put a gun to their head and do it. Like, it has to be someone else who does it. There has to be a consensual, like, discussion amongst the family of
2: who's going to make that sacrifice, which is— Tremendously
1: important once we get to
2: that line of demarcation. But also, Interesting. this comes off more in the, the movie than than the novel, is that the way they explain themselves, where they talk about how they met on a message board, which, you know, with, in the era of fortune yeah. and all those things, you know, that that's slang for extremism and bigotry, basically. But they come across... And they talk like gay conversion therapists talk, where it's, we didn't know you were gay. It's not about you. It's a higher power. There is a religious component to the book, but the movie is very much directed from the perspective of despite there not being a specific deity, this is very much Old Testament God where mm-hmm. he is vengeful and he wants a sacrifice. You know, this is the God who want, who ordered Abraham to kill his child.
3: Yeah, Book of Job, really, I think, because, like, that's, I mean, you're you're 100% right about the, the Abraham uh, comparison, but, but I was thinking, like, Book of Job, the idea of a person, or in this case, a family, who is being tested, not because they did anything wrong, but just because that, that's how it goes. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it's just that you, as a person, are put up against forces that are so much larger and um, undefeatable, and, and how you respond to that is sort of philosophical question
1: mike what do you feel about this setup like are you are you into this apocalyptic type setup here oh yeah i think it's really interesting because
3: anytime that there's a situation like in, in a film i always ask myself like god what would i do in that situation or you know and and yeah. any, i think anytime you get yourself asking that a sign of solid drama because if you that's a yeah because yeah. yeah. if you get because there's a there's a version of this and maybe you guys feel this but th- this is that but there's a version of this where if you're watching the movie and you don't care, you, you don't You don't even put yourself in that situation or think how you would try and deal with that situation, that's a failure. But if you start asking yourself, oh God, what would I be in that situation? Then I think that's success as far as just the setup goes.
2: And from a, Interesting. From a conceptual level, it also opens you up to several potential endings. Like mm-hmm. I don't think that this premise automatically leads you to one resolution.
3: Yeah, exactly. I was there, and there were parts where I was, like, trying to figure out what would... I'd be like, God, so I feel like he must be the one. No, no, they must find a way to have nobody get killed, or no, what if they do this? And I just, I kept doing that throughout the whole thing. I never knew for sure exactly how it would end and what what ended up happening. I didn't know what would happen, so...
1: Same here. I got to be honest, guys. I I don't know if I'm putting my cards on the table or not, but I was pretty much on the edge of my seat this entire film. I literally had no idea what was going to happen from scene to scene. We had this little girl roaming around. We have these other things going on. Somebody could die at any second. That That's kind of the tension behind this, too. And, of course, we see these scenes on the TV and stuff, which we'll get to. But at this point, I'm pretty much on the edge of my seat. I thought I knew what was going to happen because I had read the book. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, boy, there's a
2: setup.
3: It's an interesting tone in this movie because it's, I don't know if edge of my seat would be quite the way I personally would describe it, but it is—it's—it's a a tension that is, I think, is is a little different in this from what you usually get in a thriller because I feel like it's. It's a little bit less edge of your seat and more like you're sort of sinking into your seat a little bit. It's so just kind of uh, uncomfortable in a a good way, in a good way, I think. But uh, and and then maybe and maybe in a a not so good way later on, because I think it gets into some real thorny like questions. There's been some of the discourse about this film and we'll probably get into that when it comes along. But yeah, no, I, I yeah. Very, very tense. I mean, just from the start, really. Yeah.
1: Leonard says no more fucking around. It's time that they make a choice and Eric and Andrew, that doesn't take them very long. They're like, nope, we're not going to do that. So Redmond steps up, and Adrian makes Wynn face the other way. Redmond puts a white cloth over his head as sunlight reflects off the glass in the house, which I think is important with with what Shyamalan's trying to portray here. And Redmond says that part of humanity has been judged, and he's killed right there and then. At this point, you know what, I got to say, I wasn't sure when I walked into this theater that this was more than a PG-13 rated movie. But here, when we're seeing this blood go right down the shirt, this is when I knew it was a rated R movie. This is a pretty tense scene here. What do you guys think about this?
3: Yeah, tense scene. I. It, it's weird. I think that um, for an R-rated movie, there's a version of this where he goes a lot harder in terms of the gore and stuff like that. It's weirdly kind of restrained for something that is an R-rated film. Uh, but it is, yeah, I mean, it is further than, than his... It, it is an R-rated movie. But I, I do think it's interesting that there is still kind of a, a, a restraint in showing some of the violence. Like, there is a version of this where every time one of them gets killed, it's a full-on, like, people get bathed in blood and there's guts and viscera and, yeah. you know, and this is not bad. No,
2: this is not the happening where people <laughs> willingly get eviscerated by lawnmowers. This is a mm. certain degree of restraint, although there was a part of me that when he did this, I wanted to yell 10 points to Gryffindor for actually, <laughs> for, for actually going through with this and being as... As graphic as, as it is without being overly, this wasn't Terrifier 2, is all I'll say.
1: Yeah, and Mike hit it on the head earlier where he said this kind of feels like a little more like a like a violent episode of The Twilight Zone. He does kind of go over the edge a little bit later, and we'll get to that. But I think here he's pretty restrained, and this while it's violent, it's not necessarily graphic yet, but it's getting there. It's like everything else in this movie. It just kind of escalates. The violence kind of escalates. hmm We then cut to a flashback of Eric and Andrew at the orphanage as they go to pick up their new baby. Back to modern times, as Shyamalan is really focused on the moment where they take Redmond outside. He doesn't want to make it too graphic, though, as we're only really seeing his legs and Leonard drag him away. But we're feeling the power of the moment. Like, a lot of these, you know, I'll, and I'll go ahead and call this, it's a little bit of a horror film. Uh, a lot of these movies, like, someone dies, and Matt, you and I have covered so many of these. We're just like, up. Oh, there's another dead body, let's move on. I think Shyamalan wants you to feel these moments.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that this flashback for pretty well deployed and like well uh, timed and, and they do a good job along with the the, sort of the bursts of violence within the main timeline of keeping things moving at a pretty good clip in a way that the audience does not feel like they're stuck standing in place, which you definitely is a risk when you do a movie about two people who are tied up in chairs for the bulk of the movie. Mm -hmm.
2: Again, I'm frustrated that the flashbacks are always insinuating what the actual issue is because in the book it is made clear that they have to leave the country to adopt her oh really because Okay. massachusetts in the world of that book you know same-sex couples can adopt and that's why he has to pose as the uncle rather than say he's the husband so kind of gotcha. expressing that they experience bigotry in their lives but the movie doesn't it doesn't make that clear i'm not saying he needs to spell everything out but if you're going to have these flashbacks and hey, look this movie's not subtle in my opinion, which will tie into some things I have to say later on. So I was a little frustrated that they... It's almost like Shyamalan, to your point, if I didn't read this book, I would have thought he made them a gay couple just because he wanted to. And that's not a compliment in your eyes? No, it's not.
3: When did the book come out? That's interesting that you say that about within the context of the book They that they, they weren't able to adopt. Because that is that is sort of the implication in the movie. Well, the implication in the movie is that the circumstances were not there for them to adopt whether that was a legal thing or, or societal in a way that's not the law exact you know i'm kind of rambling a little bit i'm just curious because i wonder is when is the book from
2: 2018
1: is when it was published
3: oh okay so recent yeah that's interesting
1: And yeah, within the last five years so they yeah. they scoffed up the rights to it pretty quick all right boys i know we're in the first week of february but i'm going to go ahead and say we didn't get perhaps the cameo of the year Uh yes m night Shyamalan is hawking an air fryer over tv and it's one that apparently makes great fried chicken with a lot less guilt (laughs) this was fantastic i love this cameo
3: it's good it's good we've talked before we've we've ragged on m night's cameos in the past Mm -hmm. and sometimes they go beyond cameos like in lady in the water um But, uh, no, this is a good one. I like, I like that he's having fun with it. And I like, I like the idea of, uh, you, yeah, you, you said it right. It's chicken, chicken without the guilt. That's, that's so funny given what the, where the story is going and everything. But, yeah, and it's, it kind of reminds me of how it <laughs> he had such a small part in, uh, old, but it was so crucial. And it was like, yeah. And it was like he's <laughs> kind of playing a, a version of himself a little bit and that he's, filming the whole thing and then
1: in, in, in this yeah. it's just a complete silly <laughs> just, it's just, it's just, he's so insignificant in this which yeah. is probably why i like it so it's much it's funny honestly. it's
3: like it's like when tarantino finally stopped trying to act and then in hateful Eight, his cameo was just he comes <laughs> in to, to narrate 20 seconds of it as if he's sitting next yeah. to you in the theater yeah <laughs>
2: This is not in the book, so it caught me tremendously off guard well before the line of demarcation. So God bless him for getting it out of the way in a pretty inventive way. I was expecting – I'm surprised this cabin not only does – it doesn't get cell service, but it gets QVC. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we see that there are cautionary advisements in the cities of Seattle and Baltimore as well as Hawaii as tsunamis are happening everywhere. Andrew is not happy as Leonard wants to see what was shown to them, which is a just-happened, catastrophic earthquake. So everything they're saying is apparently coming to fruition here. However, Andrew brings up an interesting point. He talks about it looking pre-recorded, that it made
2: landfall before they showed up, so basically they could just be using this as incentive to commit acts of violence against gay people. That's an interesting point to bring up that is consistent with the novel, but the movie is not preoccupied with having any real kind of philosophical discussions or debates or back and forth. Shyamalan portrays everything as matter of fact, and that is a huge problem
1: I have when you get to the resolution. Interesting. Let me ask you this. If he had gone that way, and he had kind of dived deep into this, putting your personal feelings about your own situation aside... Wouldn't you have judged it on those merits and not just kind of looked at it as kind of like this pulpy little horror film that he's trying to make? On some level, yes. I'd be very curious if I had not read the book before I watched this movie. Yeah. Um, but but I think
2: instead of going that Shyamalan is making more of a slick thriller, which is why there's that. They lay the, the gun sequence later on. That That's a much more prominent where it's all about them escaping, not necessarily self-defense. That, that component is pumped up more in the movie than it is in the book. The book is much more talkative and it's much more conversational. You know, I, I prefer that based on my own personal, what I enjoy about these types of, of stories. And I actually think there's mm-hmm. a, there's a movie we'll talk about in a few years that is not the better version per se, but I think does this idea of making it slicker and, and more of a thriller, but also retaining the point of the, of the book. And it has to do with Stephen King as a spoiler
1: alert. Interesting. interesting. Sean Long then goes back to the home video footage well that we all agreed he did pretty well in Signs. That was probably the best part of Signs is when he showed that home video footage. And here we're sh- sh- seeing a huge wave gather steam and then just hit a bunch of swimmers. I thought this was actually very well done. I really did like the scene. We were just seeing that wave just grow and grow and grow, and then it just covers everybody. I thought that was good. What about you guys?
2: I wasn't all that impressed with the rendering on it. Uh, it. It's one of those things where I'm like, okay, this is a movie. No sane person would be taping this consistently as it heads towards them. They would have turned around and started running.
3: I don't know if that's true. I, people, people can be pretty silly. I don't know.
2: Depends where that where did that tsunami make landfall will help decide whether or
1: not... That's true, yeah.
3: I thought this was pretty well done, but I actually kind of was a little bit frustrated with... There's one later that I like, but some of these news segment type things kind of bothered me a little bit, only in the sense that I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like there's basically no way that... The apocalypse was not happening in terms of like, there was no way that this was being faked. There was no way that this was like not part of the essential plot of the film. So some of the hand wringing within the situation about, oh, this was pre-recorded. This was, they timed this and everything. Even though I understand that it is logical for that character to bring that up at that time, it would make sense for somebody to say that in that situation. And it does create a dramatic conflict between Andrew, who is more skeptical and Eric, who's a little more open to understanding what the situation is about. Part of me was a little bit like, okay, like it's going to be real. So like, I don't, so don't waste my time too much with this, but uh, they are good. I mean, yeah, it is very reminiscent of signs, Also reminiscent of the part in the happening, which is uh, unintentionally comedic where the the guy gets his arm bitten off by lions, But
1: yeah. (laughs) Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, I thought we'd never mention that movie again. Leonard says that, He will just leave them to reflect overnight, and they will have a choice to make in the morning. As he says, they will have to watch the entire roll burn unless they make a sacrifice. Eric doesn't seem as sure. So Eric, at this point, he's concussed but he thinks when he was hit he saw somebody and we'll, we'll talk about this later on in the movie this is a big thing that comes up throughout the course of the film he saw a figure and all of that will come to light now matt is this something that's drawn out in that book as well both components the concussion and him seeing a figure in the light those are both straight from the book we cut to another flashback as they're driving up to the cabin while listening to Casey and the Sunshine Band here, interesting to see this song in this light, this movie. They all jump in the lake, and this is definitely a happier time for the family. Now, Matt, we have covered a lot of flashback scenes already this year. Are these scenes adding much to the movie for you?
2: No, they feel they feel obligatory because they're in the book. Um, <laughs> um, okay. I, this one in particular, I think disrupts the flow in the pacing more so than any of the I tend to agree with uh, granted, you. there's only yeah. three or four flashbacks, but this one felt the most intrusive. I felt like uh, this, was, this was a knock on my cabin.
3: <laughs> it's interesting, because this is the one that, of course, kind of has the biggest payoff at the end. But of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that in the first place it
1: was. Sabrina dresses up Eric's wounds, and she assures him that none of them are churchgoers. They've all just had visions of what's going to happen. She said that she learned a saying from her dad that, trust in something more than yourself we then seeing various shots of the cabin as Eric reassures Andrew that he's okay and that he doesn't believe them. Everyone seemed to have forgotten about when, though, as she escapes and is wandering around outside, trying to get away until Leonard runs her down and says that he doesn't blame her for being scared. So Leonard, again, someone's shooting these scenes from the ground up. So Batista's a big intimidating dude I know I've stood close to the guy he is a big dude I think he is trying so hard to make him look intimidating yet not too I don't want to say dangerous but how do you guys feel about the way that Batista at this point is being shown in this film Leonard is not really that dangerous is he no based on the way the movie is portraying him he is compelled by something that he has to do not
2: that he wants to do and I think that's consistent because he's not overly aggressive with her like he doesn't twist her arm and drag her back. He sort of picks her up like the T-800 picks up Sarah Connor. So I think, you no, know, Shaman's doing a good job and this felt like, okay, you need an action beat every 10 pages so we're going to have one of them make an escape.
3: Well, I mean, I, I had no issue with this part, really. Um, I, Talking about Batista again, it, it, it is interesting, again, that I think he has to play both very scary and he is you know, enhanced in that way by the camera. But also, he does have to be very, like, kind, uh, in a way, to uh, win. And, like, he has to be, he has that whole thing about, like, he's a teacher. He is somebody who understands kids. He's, uh, you know, he says in the beginning, he's like, oh, I like this cartoon. It looks like a teacher's empathy. Like, this contrast between the the gentleness and the the fact that he is this giant silverback gorilla type guy uh, and that he's come here with weapons, you know, is part of it.
1: Andrew then has an idea that Redmond was actually the guy from the bar from when he was attacked. And then he tells Leonard to grab his wallet. But Leonard says it doesn't matter what his name is, as all of them had the same visions. Andrew pleads his case, and Leonard shows him pictures of kids that he coached. And according to him, Andrew needs to stop thinking about himself and just think about why he's here. We cut to morning as Adrian apparently makes some killer eggs, and she tells Wen that she can make a great breakfast burrito. If she wants, and right now this movie is doing to me and breakfast burritos what the menu did with me and burgers. I want one really fucking bad.
3: That would be pretty good. I'd go for that right
1: now. Yeah. If I can we pause? Absolutely. no, I can't. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Andrew is once again telling them that they're crazy, and Leonard says that the reason they've all found one another online is that all of them are having the same visions. It's now time for the next sacrifice as we cut to ropes being severed by the guys in the chairs. But Adrian is now pleading her case as she has a son named Charlie, but she is now in line to die. Eric and Andrew once again say no, with Andrew saying that they are not going to be part of their suicide cult. But Adrian puts the mask on and Shyamalan is again building to suspense as she is also murdered. Again, he wants you to feel every single death in this, doesn't he?
2: Yes, this is where the pivot is. This scene is not in the book. Really? So, I'm going to loop this in with a scene in a little bit later. This is where it becomes something different. She dies in a different manner.
3: How so, does she die?
2: Well, when we get to the scene involving the gun in the car, I'll explain it. Because it's, it's tied into that.
3: Okay. okay, I'm curious. But this whole thing with yeah.
2: her son is also not in the book. So, the thing they left out was that after they kill Redmond, and Andrew says that, you know, this is the guy who assaulted me in the bar. The other three actually have a conversation about that, and they talk about what if he's right? Instead, it's lip service in this movie. Like, I never get the sense that these cultists are wrestling with their guilt, which is a big thing in the book.
3: Interesting. I think that sort of what's, I don't know, it sounds like maybe in the book, there's a little bit more kind of, not necessarily from their perspective of, of the intruders, but like you get to understand them a little bit beyond how Eric and Andrew and Wen are seeing them. Whereas in the movie, there's there's something enigmatic about them and and they have to kind of Mm -hmm. be a little enigmatic in the, in the way that the film is constructed. Yeah. That's interesting.
1: Leonard says now, thanks to them, the second plague is on its way. They turn on the TV and sure enough, we're seeing schools being shut down and this is when Eric says that he thinks that he saw a figure and Andrew is convinced it's part of his concussion so this plague, this is part of the book as well, correct? Oh, the bird flu? Yeah. Yes, but not until later on. They're a little bit out of sequence. Interesting, because you said this book was released in 2018, right? Yeah. Wow, so this was two years before the pandemic. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's uh, like how the light
3: noise movie is just now coming out, and so it's like...
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <I'm> right? <hot. laughs> Andrew says that Leonard has been checking his watch and putting on pre-programmed shows to prove their point when starts screaming, which is her way of distracting everyone. As Andrew and Eric, they get out of their constraints and stand up. Andrew makes his way out and is attacked by Sabrina. He gets in their car and goes to the backseat for the gun that he mentioned earlier. Sabrina's trying to get in as Eric is fighting Leonard off. I'll say it. I think this is some pretty great suspense. Now, Matt, file away what actually happens here in the book for now. Do you think in this movie, the way this movie is constructed, that this is actually a pretty suspenseful scene? Yes, it is. But okay.
2: Spoiler, alert, All right. spoiler now, alert! for the book, everybody. This is where everything goes haywire.
1: So not the book. Okay. All right. We'll get to that. We'll get to that in a bit. But Mike, do you like this scene of them going out in the car and getting this gun like this? Oh yeah, this is really
3: well done tension scene. Really, really well done suspense scene.
1: All right. So Matt, unleash. What exactly is going on right. here? Your Spoilers issue. for the book, everybody, because I, I would recommend it. So
2: in the book, when Andrew goes out to the car, Adrian is shot and killed here. So in the struggle, Leonard also comes out and Wen is shot and killed. Oh, my God.
1: What the fuck? They killed the kid? Yeah,
2: the, the kid is accidentally shot two-thirds wow. of the way through the book. And that changes the story dramatically because Leonard voluntarily lets himself be tied up. And he says that because Wen's death was accidental, either Eric or Andrew still has to die.
3: Okay.
1: Wow, that puts a wrench in. Yeah, that's everything. completely different. Yeah. Like that's that, that's yeah. completely different. From here
2: different. on out, they are two separate things, and obviously the resolution is very different. <laughs> knowing that, sure. in my, yeah. I, well, yeah, knowing what. <laughs> yeah. But there are some dramatic implications as a result of that change, though, that I will get to once the movie sure. continues. But yeah,
3: from here well, on out, there is little in common. It is interesting that I feel like watching the movie. I think it's pretty clear they don't have M Night Shyamalan come out and look directly at the camera and say it. But I think watching the movie, it's pretty clear they're not going to kill the kid. Not just because it's a movie, and that's one of the things that tends to not happen in movies. You can only kill a kid if they're the baby and old that turns to dust after ten seconds.
1: But um, Mike Spielberg did it in the seventies. He yeah, that's he true. That's true. But,
3: there is a precedent. There set is a precedent. But you, but okay, but but I feel like watching the movie, you can tell that M Night Shyamalan is not interested in
1: killing the kid, and
3: and is letting you know that pretty much too. Like I feel like he's not, he's not even doing the thing of like putting the child into jeopardy in order to get some thrills out of it, other than just the fact that that's what the situation is, is that there's four people with weapons there and stuff like that. But I feel like you pretty much know from the beginning. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like you pretty much know from the beginning that it's going to be one of the two fathers or both of them or neither of them or something, but there's not going to be any situation where the kid fucking gets killed on so, on, on screen.
2: So yeah. I thought the reason that Shyamalan fought for an R rating was to have that inclusion. That's what I thought his rationale was. And accidental death of a child, I think there's more precedent for that case of point, hereditary. Um, yeah, that's true. I, bottom line to me, I don't think Shyamalan had the balls, or, or the studio did not. Because I always say you can change stuff for the better, but I can't say that they did that.
3: <laughs> and what they replaced it with, oh boy, I have words. That's, a, cause that's totally, because I, I, of course it's totally different now that we're talking. Like, But it's, it, that completely changes any kind of motivation or calculus in the last 30, 40 minutes of the movie if the girl is dead. That's so crazy. I, I had no clue. I almost don't even know what to say. That's just so, so wildly different. Mike. It's one
1: of the biggest changes I've ever seen in an adaptation uh, in quite some time. And piling on what, you, what you're what you saying, Mike, where Shaman's not necessarily putting it out there that he's definitely not going to kill this kid. But you get the sense when we get to the final leg of this thing, he has the kid going into a room with headphones on completely out of danger. So you know she's not going to die. Yeah. He's too you much know, of a like dad. That, to do. Like it's like like you said, Spielberg. That's a good point. Spielberg
3: was you know twenty seven or whatever when he did Jaws, and he was not. He had no kids. and that's what happened there. He would not do that in any in any of his his later movies. You know,
1: M Night's too much of a dad. He's- that's a great point, and I'll get to that when we talk about Jurassic Park. Spielberg really lost that edge when he got to that point, but yeah. we'll get there. <laughs> So, Andrew gets the gun and shoots right by Sabrina, which causes her to run away. Andrew walks in as Leonard says that they were chosen because of the pure love their family has for one another. Matt? Huh? <laughs> Questions? <laughs> uh, Is this why they were chosen in that book? Essentially, yes. Okay. There's no grand plan,
2: like in the book, like these people at this exact location. The prophecy says, it's not Cabin in the Woods. I mean, it is a Cabin in the Woods, but it's not the Cabin in the Woods, where you meet, like, dying. the archetypes. It's just, both the movie and the book try to play it off as kind of spontaneity, or just, just circumstance. But the movie, unfortunately, the only note they have is just, well, uh, you guys are both two gay men tied up and threatened by apocalyptic doomsayers. That's...
1: All they have. He has his gun pointed at Leonard, but he shoots Sabrina as she barges in. Yes, because I've got to run at somebody while they're holding a gun. (laughs) We cut to another flashback of Eric and Andrew. They're in a bar as Eric. He, He tells Andrew that he's kind of worried about his temper, but someone tells him that they're being too loud. Andrew tries telling the person to shut up, and this is when a bottle is smashed on his head, and the incident mentioned earlier is being portrayed here. And we cut to Eric buying a gun. I find it interesting the way Shyamalan shoots this, because that could be Ron or Redmond, as he is in this, as he's called in this. Or it couldn't be. Like, he doesn't want it overtly said. Oh, I I knew, I knew it was him from the accent. I
3: was like, there's no there's no <laughs> Or way. non-accent. I, well, it's, it's not even that it's like I can tell he's British. It's just like it seems like his accent was all over the place. One minute it was Boston, the next minute it was yeah. Texas. This is, I, I'm not even complaining. I, just, I was like, oh, that's definitely him because there's no other actor who has that voice, has that accent. So.
1: <laughs> Back to modern times as Leonard once again asks if they're willing to make a choice. We see Andrew seemingly put the pieces together as he says that Leonard is a bigot that hooked up with three other people one of which was the one in the bar that put Andrew out of commission and gathered a plan of revenge for Redmond going away. Matt, is this kind of alluded to in the book as well? Yeah, this is
2: the Andrew's whole argument. Okay. This is a
1: orchestrated hate crime. Okay. Leonard denies this, but again, I'm on edge, as I think this kind of would be the type of bullshit twist that Shyamalan would pull. Yeah, I was waiting because I'm like, okay, yeah. if you're going to change the book that drastically,
2: clearly there's got to be some kind of Shyamalan patented twist. Uh, yeah, and I spent exactly. the rest of the movie with my leg crossed going, I'm kind of scared to know what
1: he's about to do, but I'm curious. And, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. All right. <laughs> Andrew proves that Redmond is actually named Rory and is the man that assaulted him in the bar. Leonard then backs into the bathroom as Andrew shuts the door. Andrew says that if he opens the door and sees him, he will shoot. But as he opens the door, he sees that the window has been opened. he shoots a hole in the shower curtain and as he reaches to open the curtains leonard emerges and overpowers him and this is basically the only time we really see the um, intimidation of batista really come out in fruition here this was a really again Shyamalan. when he's on he's on man and i think in this movie for the most part he's on i think the scene of andrew reaching for the curtain and is he there is he not there i mean we know that batista can't fit out that goddamn window we know that's (laughs) not happening but the tenseness that comes with that, I think, is done pretty well here. What about you, Mark? I agree.
3: Yeah, totally. Um, I think this is also a, a really tense scene. I was, I was gripping my armrest. I remember during this mm-hmm. this part. Yeah, really well done. And I feel like you don't get enough of that these days in terms of classic kind of suspense like that. You know, is there somebody behind the curtain or not? I feel like you don't get too much of that in movies these days. So I'm glad that Shyamalan was able to to, to pull that off. And I think that he has point at this point in his career, you know, directing at the level he has in terms of fame and success for over twenty years, he's gotten to the point where he can just do a scene like that, do it pretty it feels like effortlessly. Which is not to say that everything yeah. in the movie is effortless oh. effortless because there's a lot of parts in, in in Night Shyamalan movies that are very effortful for good or for ill. Yes. You know, there's a lot of stuff where you go, <laughs> You're really doing a lot here,
1: you know. Matt, what about you, sir?
2: Given that he was behind a shower curtain, I wanted Batista to clothesline him just to get some uh, (laughs) some wrestling. Yes, Shyamalan still knows how to construct
1: a well-executed set piece. We then see more of the home video type stuff that Shyamalan loves to do as we're seeing 700 airplanes falling from the sky as a result of a cyber attack. Leonard starts reciting every word the newscaster is saying as Eric takes out the TV. Leonard says the apocalypse has gone on so long that what they are seeing now is not the fireworks, but the sparks of the aftermath. Andrew still doesn't believe it, though, as he's trying to take his family with him. But Eric is still hesitant. So Leonard goes outside as the last part must be done here. Andrew sends Wen to her room and tells her to put on her headphones, and we mentioned that earlier, as Leonard once again says that the screaming is the worst part of his visions, and he begs them to make the sacrifice and save the world, but they're still saying no, so Leonard slices his throat. Ouch. You know, Matt, you and I have covered a a lot of movies where someone slices their throat. It's (laughs) fucking sickening every single time I see it. I wince every single time I see someone do this on screen. Yeah, it's it's the greatest finishing move in professional wrestling.
3: I always wonder if that's how possible that is. I always feel like I wouldn't have the strength. I mean, I'm not Dave Bautista, admittedly. I don't. I don't know how many of our listeners have seen <laughs> photos of me. I'm slightly smaller in size than Dave
1: Bautista, but I've seen you on TV, sir. Yeah,
3: right. I, I always feel like I would not be able to. Not that I spend a lot of time imagining how I would slice open my throat, but I always feel like once you cut a little bit in, you would lose the strength to continue cutting. But I guess that's kind of a morbid thought. I should maybe continue and not not
1: dwell on that. Did the scene work for you or not? Oh, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, for sure. And I think Batiste is really good here with this kind of sad uh, resignation that he has. And yeah, getting that R rating with that slash throat.
1: Yep, yeah, exactly. And like I said, that the violence just keeps escalating and here. It's really escalated as ru- as Red just runs down a shirt and the sky is filled with clouds. Eric gives his assertion that maybe what they just witnessed was the four horsemen of the apocalypse getting to know them as they were pleading their case. After all, you had Leonard... Who as a teacher represents guidance. Redmond, who has the aggressive one, represented malice. Adrian, who has a cook, represented nurturing, and Sabrina, who has a nurse, represented healing. I gotta say, man, I did not see this coming. This was pretty crazy, and I and I did read later that you know if you look at the colors of their shirts, they represent everything that is being portrayed here, and Andrew himself has a shirt that has all these colors on it as well as philadelphia but we'll get past that for oh, now oh shit hold on <laughs> a second wait a
3: second so i'm trying to remember the colors of the shirts so it's red yellow i don't the. Exactly. i don't want to stop the, Grind this to a screeching halt of color discussion but yeah yeah I'll, I, I, I didn't pick up on that
1: yeah they're all red at some point i know that yeah well matt how'd you feel this works sir I hate to be that guy. The the book, Sabrina kills him. Sabrina kills who? Leonard. So she
2: kills Leonard. Oh, she kills Leonard. Oh. She realizes that, you know what? Fuck these visions. Well, I say she has a psychic break, but she realizes that, you know, this is not the way. So what she does is she kills Leonard and brings Eric and Andrew to Redmond's car and kills herself before. Because it's sort of like she It's kind of insinuated that she's possessed by these visions. So she does it to like. Warned off what's coming but she tells them that there's still time to prevent the apocalypse before she kills herself so
1: she's the last one to die in the book
3: that's interesting
1: mike would that have worked for you
3: well i gotta say out of the four actors well, characters it's not only actors but out of the four characters who are the intruders sabrina was the character i thought was like sort of developed the least i didn't really get a good sense of Who she was. So the idea that she would be the last of them surviving is not particularly interesting to me. And I thought that Dave Batista was really good. So I didn't, I I wouldn't want to get rid of him. That's interesting though. Um, yeah, I don't know. I should say that the actor, uh, playing Sabrina, Nikki Amuka Bird, she was in old as well.
1: Just, just, oh, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah.
2: She had epilepsy.
1: Yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. Eric says they needed to feel their loss. And the decision they made at the orphanage was theirs, and the sacrifice they need to make is for more than just themselves. And he is at peace as his mind is made up. He says he is now thinking the most magnificent thought of their daughter in the future, who has led the life that she has always wanted to lead. And she's going for a drive with Andrew as she has found somebody who loves her. And basically, this is the figure that he saw when everything was coming down. So with this in mind... Andrew goes ahead, he pulls the trigger, and we learn that the biggest twist of this M. Night Shyamalan movie is that there is no twist. There is actually a fucking apocalypse. Mike, what would you feel about this? Well, I,
3: I, I was not surprised that the apocalypse was coming. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like Shyamalan, I feel like the twistiness of his movies is a little overstated. I feel like sometimes it's just plot, and people are like, ah, it's the twist. And I'm like, well, no, it's just something has to come after the thing that came before, you know. So, yeah, I was not surprised that that's what was happening. It was, really was the apocalypse, but I was liking the way that it was coming across, and I thought the, way, the the escalation of, first, it's tidal waves and tsunamis, and we've all seen those on the news and everything, and it's scary, but we've seen it on the news, and then eventually you get viruses, and that's something we all are very familiar with now, but just a few years ago, we I don't think we really were, and so that's that's new in a way, too. And then it's these planes falling from the sky. This is the imagery that I was talking about. That I thought was really interesting because I, I, I can't think of any movie where that has ever been imagery they've deployed before. just hundreds of planes falling out of the sky and everything like that. Yeah. And then finally with this the, the the lightning crashing all over and and trees lighting on fire and everything like that, the apocalyptic imagery of it, I thought was really kind of well done. very biblical. In conveying really that this is you know the ending of the world, which is something that gets threatened all the time in movies these days. Usually, it's somebody in a giant spaceship that's hovering above the universe, and there's a laser beam coming down or whatever, and it's so abstract that you don't believe it. So, I think that it really does feel like Armageddon here at the end of the movie. And when I say Armageddon, I don't—I'm not talking about uh, one of the lesser <laughs> Michael Bay films.
2: I think that's the only Michael Bay movie we have not yet reviewed. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah right Matt what about you sir I'll say something nice before I do
2: okay. the big heel turn like Batista did in his run when there's that lightning strike in the background I thought they off went. I thought the tree house was caught on fire and she died I thought that was the big twist that God killed her anyway uh, but I, and I <laughs> thought in my head I'm like oh yeah, it's pretty ballsy but you can still get to the same resolution that the book did but no so the movie basically says at this point of all the avenues that they could have taken Shyamalan chose the worst one. The cultists die, which causes the apocalypse. Eric pleads for him to make the sacrifice, which he does, and the sacrifice undoes all the disasters. So because of that, Andrew then looks through all the cultists' belongings and realizes that everything they said was the truth. And the message is that Yes, the world is alive, and they were proven right because the suffering and ultimate murder of a gay man was justified. And the world can only continue to turn as long as a persecuted queer couple dies for its benefit. And to me, I don't think that was Shyamalan's intent, but that's how it came off, and I was fucking infuriated.
1: Here's my question. Shaman has always been drawn to, we talked about with the Sixth Sense on, always done it. He has thrived on emotional stories, not necessarily stories that make sense. Here, we have this couple making the sacrifice, and he is going for the emotion of it. But really, what does this couple have to do with the entire world ending around them?
3: Well, they don't have anything to do with it. I mean, it's it's philosophical. It's the question of what would you do in that situation? And I think actually the key line in the movie... I think, is where uh, Eric says to Andrew, he says, what's been happening since the beginning of time? It's always a, a different family, and this just keeps happening and again and again, and they keep having to make the choice, which is really just a way of saying this could be anybody. It just so happened that we're looking at this one couple in it. The fact that there, there's no real sort of grand design, I don't think, beyond that. I don't know if that's the case in the in the book or not. But it's interesting, Matt. I, I read the ending of the movie uh, pretty differently. I see where you're coming from, though. Uh, and it's, it's de- he's definitely playing with some really, I mean, it's, it's, it's really thorny kind of material. And it sounds like it goes right back to the source material. I think this movie is so much in conversation with old. So old, so much of that was about the idea of one moment you're young, the next moment you're old, and then you're dead and you're gone and part of what was going on in that movie is that eventually the uh, characters, you know, after tra- fighting it trying to solve it and trying to figure out how they can get out, oh, out of this situation where they're aging so rapidly, they eventually get to the point where they just realize, you know, this is a pretty nice beach, and they kind of accept it, and they die. And we talked about in that episode about maybe the movie should have just ended there, really. But that movie, I think, mm-hmm. is kind of a movie about accepting death and accepting just the course of all things, really, in a way that's kind of positive, uh, or is at least is is kind of you can, you can see the positive stuff in it. You can you can see that it's a nice beach, even if it's making you old. And this movie, I think, what he's trying to say, and I think we can have disagreements about whether or not it's technical, but I think he's trying to say is sort of the world that's out there. That's outside the cabin, which is why I think it's so important that it is kind of set at this cabin. Because the idea of the cabin in the woods or whatever is like the retreat, you know. It's the place where you're safe, where you are off with your family, with your loved ones, and you're out there. And there's the world outside, but you've got the cabin. And then there's the knock. The outside world comes in. What I think that Shyamalan is doing with this movie is he's sort of saying there's a whole world out there. And it's full of good and evil. It includes people like the Batista character, who is a teacher. He seems to be a really nice guy. He, he, he coaches the basketball team and everything like that. He seems to be a sweet person. And it includes people like Rupert Griff character. This awful, kind of violent, homophobic, bigoted, just terrible kind of person. They're part of the same world. And this family's part of that world as well. And the whole thing basically gets down to the situation of can you exist in part of a world that might have parts of that world? But hey, can you still exist in that world? And what I think is interesting about the ending, and whether or not it's totally successful is, I think, kind of an open question, is basically the Jonathan Groff character, I think, comes to the conclusion of what the characters in old come to, which is that he looks at his life, looks at the things that are good in it, looks at his marriage and his daughter, and he accepts his death. But then you have the other character, you have Andrew, and his reaction is so different. And even at the end, when the apocalypse has been averted, he doesn't seem to be relieved at all. He seems just pretty much as despondent, maybe he's not completely despondent, but he still seems pretty fucking despondent at the end. And then him and his daughter drive off, and it's kind of this inverse of the ending of, like, what I thought of as the Terminator, where where it's this mother, and she's going off with her child, driving off into the storm. Here it's shot in this way where you can see both the storm and the light. The darkness, the light, the the danger, and also potentially safety, but it's all out there. That's all out there in the world. That's the way I read it. Now, this is some tricky stuff, I think, because, I mean, it's just dealing with so many things in terms of religion, in terms of sexuality, in terms of hatred and, and prejudice and things like that. And as I've thought about it, the more I think about old and how they tie into each other.
2: I think Shyamalan was more preoccupied with the COVID way to look at this movie. When you look at the four professions that these people occupy, you have a nurse, you have a cook, you have an ex-convict and a teacher, all of which were sections of humanity that were basically left to their own devices once COVID started hit. And a lot of those were already in shambles by the time COVID was a thing. If you look at teacher unions... Look at the halfway house process and nursing. That's a whole other podcast. But the movie is almost indicative of who it believes to be the most useful. And it's kind of insensitive to me that Sabrina is the only one that's dispatched by somebody else. The the nurse of all people. There's a certain amount of insensitivity to that. And I I get what you're saying. I don't envy Shyamalan. It's It's a delicate line to cross, especially with all the different ways that he has to play this in a universal, no pun intended, sort of religious allegory. It's not specifically a denomination, but it's rooted in Old Testament God, as we talked about earlier. But my problem is that the movie never explores that implication, specifically how those values left their own trail of blood that includes every single letter in LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be just... I don't believe Shyamalan is a bad person. I don't think this was his intent. But I don't think he was skilled enough to pull this off. I think Paul Schrader could have done this really well. I think Lars von Trier could have done this really well. Because the whole resolution of the book is that after Wen is killed, Eric considers doing what he does in the movie. But Andrew tells him, because he is the human rights lawyer, which is a very important thing in the movie as well, he has seen the worst of humanity. And he tells him, I don't believe we should bow down to a god that doesn't accept the death of our child as enough bloodlust, as enough penance. So they decide that if the apocalypse is going to happen, I don't want to be without you. So they take Redmond's car with Wen's body in the back and they just drive towards the unknown. Like, it's not explicitly said if the world is ending, and I think that's my own personal preference notwithstanding. I think that's more powerful than
1: what is illustrated here. We cut to Andrew and Wen watching the cabin go up in flames as it's struck by lightning. This, this was so fucking a, convenient. This is a way
2: to make sure that there's no investigation. And, yep, like, yep. and it's not in the book. The, the, the cabin doesn't go up in flames. They just drive. Really?
3: I always think about that when there's, like, horror movies where, like, the one that I always think of is uh, Malignant, where after the end of the movie, no spoilers, oh, yeah. no spoilers, but after the end of the movie, I'm like, it seems like it's like a, kind of basically a happy ending for the main character. And I'm like, girl, you're going to have a lot to explain about this yeah. <laughs> one. <So, you can't laughs> yeah. They
2: can't won't be poltergeist where the house gets sucked into a vortex. Yeah.
1: yeah, right. So there's a little bit of that here. They walk towards Leonard's car. And they take a drive to the local diner, seeing on the news that everything is going back to the way it was. They're also seeing in this car that everything that was said in that cabin is pretty much in Leonard's back seat here. It represents everybody and how they portrayed themselves. Matt, this is the way it is in the book. No,
2: the, the truth or the validity of who they
1: claim to be, there's never a moment
2: of having that 100% oh, wow. confirmed, which, again, makes the resolution a lot more powerful, where it's, do we believe what they said? And even if these were liars, and they felt discompelled, does that give us a right to still act upon what they would have wanted? The only thing that's confirmed is the Redmond is, is indeed the person who beat him up
1: in the bar. That's the only thing that's given a definitive yes. And I want to say, Shyamalan, being the big Alfred Hitchcock fan that he is, being the one who, back in the early aughts, he was portrayed (laughs) as the master of suspense. You would think he would keep something like this in the air, but he resolutes everything here.
0: Yeah,
2: and it undoes the
1: message, like I said
2: earlier, because it proves that they were right and all the deaths... And activist yeah. husband was proven correct because the world needs to keep spinning. So what if someone has to die, which is totally different than the, than the ending of the book.
3: But also for that's sort of crazy. the hidden way. Like, so it was what I was talking about earlier. Is just the sense of like it's got the two main ones that they kind of linger on. Are there's the ID that uh, confirms that it, he, he was Obannon, uh, the attacker, and then there's but then there's also that photo of Adrian and her son. So that's what I think of the idea that just both this awful guy and this really nice woman it's mm-hmm. the same thing it's the same car they're both outside the cabin you know what i mean yeah that, that's how i read it
1: at least see i would think that the way Shyamalan is he would have made adrian and leonard like husband and wife or something like if he was going to change it just change it when turns the radio on and this goes on for a minute or two as they just kind of go back and forth about turning it on turning it off but they head towards God knows what as KC and the Sunshine Band plays and credits roll on very interesting movie, Knock at the Cabin, that turned into a very interesting discussion. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Knock at the Cabin? Goudreau, I want to let you gather your thoughts before you go. I want to go to Ganeri first.
3: I think that this is pretty similar to what I – Thought of old I think I don't know This might I think I might like this a little bit better than old I think this is a good movie I think that it is pretty successful by all the terms that M. Knight is laying down and I gotta say I think I'm gonna give this an 8 which is pretty high but I think that this is a pretty successful movie I agree that there's a lot of thorny stuff going on here and I can see why somebody would really not like this stuff but for me I think that he's dealing with some really interesting material and I think that he does it in a way that's but characteristic to him, um, but also shows some more thoughtfulness than I, I personally, I think, than some of his earlier movies. But I think that this is pretty much in line with old. So I'm, I think I'm gonna give this about an 8 out of 10.
1: Short and sweet. 8 out of 10 from Ganeri, Mr. Goudreau, you of the, as soon as you came out of there, you text me. You were like, when are we going to do that podcast? Because I have things to say. You let a lot of it out already. What uh, What's your final score on M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin? This is not the movie I was expecting. And my reaction to what I saw is not what I anticipated
2: going into that theater. I, I respect Shyamalan for trying to make a movie about modern times and how, more so than a lot of his movies, this one's really got a, a point to make. Unfortunately, I think it's a terribly executed way that he changed this story to befit what he wanted to do. I found, the intent or not, the messaging and the resolution of this movie to be reprehensible. To me, this is sort of the inverse of to mention the movie I alluded to earlier. This reminded me of the opposite of Stephen King's The Mist. When you look at the book versus the movie, where the movie, which we'll talk about in 10, 15 years at least, now it's sooner than that, <laughs> that story is predicated on the fear of God, particularly being conveyed by someone who is acting on a higher power, and convinces people to join their cause. Look at the movie, that's kept intact. But Frank Darabont, he came up with a resolution similar to what Paul Tremblay did in the book, where there is a choice made, and it's a gut punch involves losing a child, and it's that whole thing of God is not benevolent. He is malevolent. And I got the sense that this was the opposite, where... He took something that really, in the book, had a very strong point and shocked me. You know, it's not common in media to have the death of a child depicted during the events of the story. A lot of times that's set up or the, the impetus. Like, a lot of times when people go to away to a cabin, it's because they lost their child and need to... Bond again as a couple. But as a movie, in particular, I do have to judge this as an adaptation. That is just my opinion because I wanted to have it read the book. It's kind of inescapable for me to not look at it that way. Yes, it's well made. Yes, it is removed of some of Shyamalan's biggest blunders as a director. But unfortunately, I find that what was being said and how it was being said removed a lot of the merits. And ultimately, this movie plays like a evangelical film about justified hatred and how queer people need to die to keep the world spinning. And I honestly don't believe that I am reading too much into this. If you think I am, please feel free to talk to me. I can have a very civilized discussion with you because that is the world we live in. And I think the movie, unfortunately, revels in some deeply irresponsible things. So my knock on the cabin, I would tap on that door once in 10 tries next to lady in the water. This is the most I have hated an M night Shyamalan movie. Wow. And I have to say that is not what I thought I would be saying when I entered that theater.
1: Wow. Is this he the biggest score uh,
3: disparity yeah. you've ever had on the show?
1: It's going to be because I'm more on Mike's side than Matt's and Matt, Trust me, dude. You are one of my best friends on this planet. I have had many, many, many discussions with you. I know where you're coming from on this, from a deeply personal space. I I get it. I really do. But me, I am looking at this as a suspense film, and I think this shows a lot of what Shyamalan is best at. And in having a discussion with the guy I went to the movie with later on, he texted me later. He said, you know, I think this movie is kind of like the trolley problem as a movie. And for people who don't know, the trolley problem is it's a a hypothetical situation where if a trolley is traveling down a track, it's going towards one person you know, but you can change it to have it hit five people that you don't know what do you do and the more I looked at it like that and the more I thought about the situations that this couple is put through it really hit me and I think Shyamalan there was a lot of times in this movie where he he hit me man there was some really good moments of suspense that I mentioned I don't think he draws this out as much as he draws out the majority of his other films now there are problems there are total plot problems with this film that you could drive a truck through but in the end I came out, I wrote it down as soon as I walked out of that theater. I wrote it down and put it in a piece of paper and put it right there on my car. I put a 7 out of 10 on this, and I stand by that. I think this is a very well-done suspense film. I am not coming at it from an emotional place, but, Matt, dude, trust me. I totally know where you're coming from on that, and, man, what an interesting discussion this has been. Okay, Knock at the Cabin is done. Now, this is the second movie of a two-movie deal that he inked with Universal. This has grown has grossed about twenty two million dollars at the box office. Not too big, but it's only you know at the time we're recording this, it's only been out about half a week. Yeah. Where does Shyamalan go from here, Mike?
3: Uh he, he'll stick around at Universal for multiple reasons. This is gonna be fine. I mean, it, it just it like in terms of the box office, like it matched its budget, and it's not gonna do a lot bigger than that. Or, like it's it's gonna grow a bit more than that, but not like a huge amount. And Universal is, not to get too, like, macro with this, but they're definitely trying to develop themselves as the stable for directors. That's what so much of them, outfitting the other studios to get uh, Oppenheimer and Nolan was about, about them getting uh, signing a deal with the Daniels right after Everything Everywhere all at once. And Shyamalan's been with them, and, and he's made these movies with them for a while. And I think that he'll uh, continue... Basically doing what he's done since The Visit, which is make basically small movies that are usually, like, set in pretty much one location. So, The Visit, Split. Glass was the biggest of them in terms of scope. And even that's a pretty, like, low-key movie for a, you know, superhero movie. Old, and then now this. I assume he'll continue making kind of $20 million max thriller-type Movies, probably some more adaptations. He's done two adaptations in a row. I wonder if that's just where he's feeling at this point in his career. And probably just continue sort of at this clip for, I don't know, maybe the rest of his career until or until they stop allowing movies to be made that aren't sequels or remakes. I don't know if he'll anytime soon be getting back to the days of when he had $100 million budget movies. But uh, I think... And he'll,
1: Spielberg knocking on his door. Yeah,
3: yeah, exactly. I think he's figured out essentially that he's going to shoot movies in Philadelphia that cost 10 to $20 million probably for the rest of his career, which is fine. I mean, I think this has been the most successful kind of run of his career. I've pretty much liked his last five movies to one degree or another. I mean, I, I, some of them I like better than others, but I think that this is a good kind of zone for him to be in this kind of
1: contemporary
3: Twilight zone type perspective. So that's, I think that's probably where I go. I don't know what his next, if he's got anything lined up at this moment But I'm sure he has something in the
1: works. Matt, what about you? As somebody who has really, really just come down hard on this film, where do you think Shyamalan can go from here? And could he go to somewhere where you find him respectable again?
2: Definitely. I did rewatch Old because I wanted to see it again after the year and a half reprieve. And I got to say, I think that movie for me is what the happening is for a lot of people. I think it's immensely entertaining, albeit for a lot of the wrong reasons. I laughed a lot. But I I do believe he's going to stay in this thriller, relatively low budget. If not universal, he'll just call Jason Blum because they have a relationship, recoup some things with Blumhouse, depending on how much money this movie makes in totality when it's all done. As far as what I'd like to see him do, to to be honest, there's a part of me that wants to see what he would do with an outright comedy, not something like The Happening or Old where it's unintentionally hilarious, uh, depending on your perspective. But and I'm not saying, you know, some studio thing. He does like the latest Adam Sandler vehicle or anything like that. Maybe Adam Sandler is a little bit of an outdated reference, but you, you know. <laughs> I was gonna say.
3: Yeah. You know, <laughs> he's making you this
2: know. in 2012. I don't know Who, who's a who's a big comedian now. <laughs>
3: Nobody. That's the thing. There's no comedies anymore. They 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 were outlawed. It's fucked
2: up. Or maybe give him. It's universal. Give him Fast and Furious 11 just to see. Like, give him, give him an action movie. I'm kind of curious to see. Not something like The Last Airbender where that's a lot of, like, awful CG and stuff. Maybe a very true horror movie, like something that where he deliberately tries to scare you. He claims he did that with The Happening, and I think that, that was bullshit on his part. He's got choices is what it comes down to. And, and my disdain for this movie does not mean that I will not support whatever his next project is. I just think he, he had a huge misfire. And he's had those before. I gave him... I thought Lady in the Water was going to be the death nail. And then he came out with Split in the Visit, which I enjoyed. So there was a clear path to forgiveness
1: that I would have with reconciliating with Shyamalan. And you know what? I might eat these words, but I would love to see what he would be able to do, given the retrospective we're in the midst of doing that, like, or in the beginning stages of doing. I would like to see what he would do with a King adaptation. I'd like to see what he would do with another adaptation. I'm kind of more in line with Mike here. I think he does have places to go that are interesting but i i I think with this two picture deal up i i think the sky's the limit for him and god a fast and furious movie with m.i Shyamalan. who the who thought james wan would be able to handle a fast and furious movie so who knows but you know what though i matt might be onto something maybe give him a comedy he did redo the entire script of she's all that and that's one of my favorite movies of all time but give him one of those give him something that doesn't really come off as self-serious, which I think at moments this movie does. But I'm interested to see what he does next because he is one of the most interesting filmmakers I have ever seen in this lifetime. And I don't know if we'll ever see another one like him, quite honestly. And you know what? I've always had respect for him. Well, I've had respect for him in the last few years I'd say seven, eight years, where he self-finances the majority of his own films now. So he put, he literally puts his money where his mouth is. Yeah. And if he has an idea, he's going to make sure it comes out in his vision. And I respect that about the guy. I really do. I think he was kind of humbled. We've seen that over the years. And after this movie, we'll see where the box office goes. But I think the sky's the limit for him after this. I really do believe that. And who knows where he's going to go. All right. That does it for... This review of Knock at the Cabin. Thank you, boys, for joining me. Mike, thank you, sir. I really appreciate you continuing this retrospective with us. Please continue checking us out. We have more surprise reviews coming up. We have stuff coming up on the Patreon, which we're going to announce pretty soon. A lot of cool things coming up. But thank you, Mike. I appreciate your time, sir. Oh, please. It
3: was my pleasure.
1: And until next time when, hell, I mean, next time M.I. my comes out with the movie, the three of us will be back. But this Friday, join us because we're going to the high seas. We're going to join Captain Jack Sparrow and his mates on Pirates of the Caribbean. And until then, three of us are here to podcast the apocalypse. Thank you, boys.
0: I don't know what's going on here, but where are the keys to the truck you guys can't enter? I'm taking my family, and we're leaving. Do you really think that everything that happened today, everything we've seen, do you really think it's all just a coincidence? Yes. I think it's all coincidence. Some horrible, unexplainable
1: coincidence, or it has to be a trick. I have to believe that.
0: You already don't believe that. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. You have to understand that we cannot and will not choose who is to be sacrificed for you. If you'd like to hear what the boys think of M. Night Shyamalan's other works from The Sixth Sense on, please head over to www.bingemedia.net and click on the Binge Aftertaste tab. I know you've been through a lot, and people haven't been fair. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. It's time for the next sacrifice. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam. And Nathan. And just as importantly, we cannot act for you. Edited by Garrett. They're never going to choose to do this, and I don't blame them. VoiceOvers by Adam. Doing us all, Andrew. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Will you make a choice? I'm afraid the rule is that no one's allowed to leave.
2: Alright, you guys ready? Yeah. Oh my god, I've been ready since the moment I walked out of that theater.
1: Oh my god. Ugh. Boy, do I have things to say.
2: And of course we have to cast a ginger actor to play a character named Redmond. <laughs> <laughs> and he plays... Hey, that, he the character's name in the book? Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, so all the names are... And B, to show that these characters have experienced trauma and oppression well before they stepped into that cabin.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sorry, my girlfriend got home. She's giving me shots and she's giving me Long Island iced teas. So.
3: Be careful <laughs> <those>. Be careful. <laughs> the <laughs> <mother's laughs> druggist <laughs> I've ever been was on a Long Island SB.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I do a lot of talking <laughs> in, this, <laughs> in, this sh-
3: in this review. So. Thank you.
1: <laughs> All right, one more shot. Hold on.
3: This was, uh, this was an, on Mykonos in Greece. I was on the island of Mykonos in the, at the hotel. I was I had a bunch of cocktails. This was when I was studying. I had a bunch of cocktails. And then I was like, I should not have any more cocktails, but maybe I'll have one. And then I said, I'll have one more. And then somebody who I was staying at the hotel with because I was, I, was, was, I was studying there was like, okay, uh, get him a Long Island iced tea. And I was like, I don't know what a Long Island iced tea is. And the bartender knew, um, but he knew, and he decided that it needed more alcohol in it than a usual Long Island iced tea. So that's, that's the first <laughs> chapter of that story I will not tell the rest of it, maybe I'll save that for a
2: different day Yeah, and for the record uh, Yeah, Long Island Days Tea is the clearance rack Of drinks, where it's just We're going to throw all the shit that yeah. we have Mix it up and hope that you like it
1: <laughs> Yeah, my uh, future father-in-law Took me out, and that's where that story's going to end Right now, because he got me Pretty wasted, too, this last Did week Did you
2: also get hit with a beer bottle? <laughs>
1: No, I did not.
2: Because I know you talk really loud when you're drunk.
1: I do. I do talk loud. Although this time I was a little restrained. But we get back to modern. There's been some of the discourse
3: about this film. And we'll probably get into that when it comes along. But yeah, no, I, I, yeah, very, very tense. I mean, just from the start, really. Yeah.
1: Mike, you should really see someone about your uh, Twitter hangout spot.
3: I really should. Uh, (laughs) I got to tell you, if my, you know what, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop there. Okay. I
1: was just making a bad joke. No, 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 no. It's a good joke. It's fair.
3: And Eric, who's a little more, um, uh, what's the word really? Uh, Obliging, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, a a little more open to understanding what the situation is about.
1: Leonard then backs into the bathroom as Leonard, as Andrew sh- shoots the door. Oh, I'm sorry. As Andrew shuts the door. Andrew <laughs> says, saying, I don't and remember if he that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Okay. <laughs> Shooting the door, I was like, oh, I must have stepped out for that one. <laughs> as Andrew shuts the door.
3: Which is really just a way of saying, this could be anybody. We're happening, happening to look happy. We're happy happening to look why, why can I speak It just so happening It just so happened that we're looking at
1: who knows but you know what boys I'm glad we had this discussion I'm glad we talked more M. Night my god this turned out to be a much deeper discussion than I was expecting okay hold but- on I'm gonna ruin everything you are yeah. about to say but I
3: just I have to say it when you said I would like to see what he would do with a king and then you continued to clarify you're talking about a Stephen King adaptation um, yes, sir. I'm, I'm yeah, not. Yeah. I'm not kidding at all. This is where my mind went when you said that, and this might be the last <laughs> comment I say about him, Shyamalan in this episode. Uh oh. I thought you were about to say, and I don't know why I thought this, but I thought you were about to say, I'd like to see what he would do with a King Ralph remake.
0: <laughs>
1: and with that. <laughs> You know what though? I, Matt might be onto something. Maybe give him a comedy. Like Hell, King he Ralph. did. Well, like King Ralph, like <laughs> like an entire. <laughs> but I think the sky's the limit for him after this. I really do believe that, and who knows where he's gonna go? King Ralph. <laughs>